0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 21st of April for the listening week that begins the 22nd. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. First three articles, pardon me, articles you'll be hearing this week are related to um, maternal health and birthing experiences. First, follow up from some news, recent news. This comes from Jezebel publication, written by Caitlin Cruz. It was published on April 20th. Baby Mila, Texas newborn, seized after parents, used midwife is on her way home. Following weeks of public pressure, baby Mila will be reunited with her parents, Rodney and Tamisia Jackson, after Dallas area authorities took the newborn from them based on their pediatrician's complaint to Child Protective Services. Public pressure and illuminating violations of our most fundamental rights works, said Marcia Jones, executive director of Dallas Reproductive Justice Center, the Afia Center, might be pronounced Afia. She was speaking to Jezebel. Went on, Mila is finally on her way back where she belongs, but this never should have happened in the first place. Systemic racism is the reason why Mila was separated from her family, period. While the Jacksons finally get moments of needed rest and joy, We'll keep fighting against the criminalization of black parents, children, and midwives because no one should live through this nightmare. The Jackson family won't get justice until the health care providers, CPS workers, DeSoto police officers, Dallas constables, and every other person who allowed Mila to be taken from her family is held accountable. In March, the Jacksons opted for a home birth with a licensed midwife. Mila developed jaundice, a common condition in newborns that shows in the yellowing of skin and whites of the eyes. When the parents took Mila to their pediatrician, the pair have two sons, the doctor recommended inpatient treatment at a hospital. The Jacksons said they would be doing the phototherapy treatment at home, under the guidance of their midwife, Cheryl Eidenberg. According to the letter, Bott wrote to CPS. This is the physician's name. Bott said he was concerned that the parents had the wrong lights. He ultimately reported them, quote, after trying 10 attempts to appeal to the family through phone calls, text messages, and leaving voicemails as they did not pick up the phone. In his letter, he cited the Jacksons' apparent wariness of the medical industrial complex, which, to be clear, is a well founded fear. Black maternal mortality rates are disproportionately high in America, and hospitals are known to discount black women's pain. Even the Jacksons' pediatrician acknowledged their fear and noted that they were very loving parents to their newborn daughter. Parents are very loving, and they care dearly about their baby. Bott wrote in the letter, their distrust for medical care and guidance has led them to make a decision for the baby to refuse a simple treatment that can prevent brain damage. The FIA Center, the Dallas organization's spearheading efforts to get Mila returned to her parents, said that Mila is just one of many children adversely affected by the child welfare system. Mila isn't the first black baby to be unjustly ripped away from her family, and she won't be the last one, unless fundamental changes are made to the child welfare and criminal justice systems. Dondra Willis, birth justice coordinator at the Afia Center, said in a statement. She went on, We need people to understand reproductive justice and freedom also means families have a right to choose when and how they want to parent. This includes informed decision-making, culturally sensitive care, and choosing birth and postpartum support plans that meet their specific needs. Pregnancy Justice, which offered pro bono legal services to the Jacksons' legal counsel, said the system was weaponized against the Jacksons. We are relieved that the Jackson family will be reunited, but that doesn't undo the harm said Pregnancy Justice Staff Attorney Emma Roth. The rally in Dallas, scheduled for later on Thursday, is now canceled so the Jacksons can reunite as a family. Next on the subject from the New York Times. This was posted April 14th, written by Ronnie Karen Rabin. Black pregnant women are tested more frequently for drug use, study suggests, Researchers said racial bias was the only explanation for excessive testing of black mothers at a Pennsylvania health system. Hospitals are more likely to give drug tests to black women delivering babies than white women, regardless of the mother's history of substance use, suggests a new study of a health system in Pennsylvania. And such excessive testing was unwarranted, the study found. Black women were less likely than white women to test positive for drugs. The study analyzed the electronic medical records of 37,860 patients who delivered a baby at a large health care system in Pennsylvania between March 2018 and June 2021. It was published on Friday in the journal JAMA Health Forum. The report comes amid a national conversation about health disparities and systemic racism in medicine, one that was triggered by the COVID-19 pandemic's disproportionate toll on communities of color, and that has focused more recently on high maternal mortality rates among Black and Native American women. The authors of the new study urged hospitals to examine their drug testing practices in order to address racial biases. Any given clinician may not be thinking about bias, but when you look at these kinds of data, you can see there is no other explanation, said Marian Jarlinski, an associate professor of health policy and management at the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health and the paper's first author. The findings are a clear illustration of disparate care, said Dr. Allison Stubb, a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of North Carolina, who was not involved in the research. The study is one example of how provider behavior causes black women to distrust the health care system. After controlling for various demographic and medical factors, the researchers calculated the probability of urine toxicology testing for different groups. Although more black women had reported prior drug use, mostly of cannabis, the difference did not fully explain the results. Black patients had the highest probability of undergoing urine tests at delivery, regardless of their prior drug use. Among those who did report substance use in the previous year, the likelihood of being tested was 76% for black women compared with 68% for white women, Yet, white women with a history of substance use were more likely to test positive. About 66.7% were likely to test positive compared to 58% of the black patients with such histories. Even among women who had no history of drug use, black women were more likely to be tested. About 7% of black patients with no history of substance use were likely to be tested, compared with 4.7% of white patients with no history, estimated the study. Hospitals screened for drug use on labor and delivery wards in order to comply with federal and state regulations for safe care for infants affected by substance use during pregnancy. It's not clear what led to greater drug testing of black women at the Pennsylvania Health System, All patients entering the Labor and Delivery Department were screened verbally for substance use, with questions adapted from the National Institute on Drug Abuse's Quick Verbal Screening Test. The policy called for running urine toxicology tests on patients with a positive result from the screening test, a history of substance use in the year before delivery, few prenatal visits, or a poor birth outcome with a clear medical explanation. But substance use history couldn't fully explain the results, and the researchers found no racial differences in the number of prenatal care visits or the rate of stillbirths. In addition to calculating probabilities, the study reported the raw number of patients who were tested for drugs. While about 21% of black patients had reported a history of drug or alcohol use, 25% underwent urine testing. Most of the black women had reported cannabis use. In contrast, 9% of white women had reported a history of drug use, including cannabis and opioids, while 10% were tested for drugs. Of the black mothers tested, 40% had positive urine toxicology tests, compared with 51% of the white mothers and still reading from the New York Times, this one was published April twelfth. written by Alicia Haridasani Gupta. How Weathering Contributes to Racial Health Disparities When Dr. Arlene Geronimus first introduced the theory in 1990, her ideas were derided and largely ignored. Now people are starting to listen. For Arlene Geronimus, Avoiding the limelight had become a way of life. Three decades ago, she put forward an idea that was unconventional for the time, that the constant stress of living within a racist society could lead to poor health for marginalized groups. Dr. Geronimus, then a 32-year-old public health researcher at the University of Michigan, had spent three years gathering data on more than 30, pardon me, 300,000 pregnant women, in search of an explanation for the vast racial disparities in infant mortality rates. At the time, black babies died more than twice as often as white babies in their first year of life. It was widely assumed that high rates of teen pregnancy among black women were to blame. Dr. Geronimus's research showed otherwise. The babies of black teens were healthier than the babies of black women in their 20s and older. These younger women, she posited, had endured fewer years of racism-induced stress and therefore had given birth to more robust children. She called this particular form of chronic stress weathering, evoking a rock being eroded by constant exposure to the elements. She first presented her findings and the outlines of her hypothesis at the annual conference of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in 1990. The backlash was immediate and ran the ideological gamut. The Children's Defense Fund, a progressive organization that had knowledge about her talk ahead of time, set up a table outside to express outrage because they thought Dr. Geronimus' conclusion was that teen pregnancy was not entirely bad. Quoting, The policy implications of her arguments are perverse, said a CDF representative, talking to the New York Times a few weeks after the speech. A columnist at the Washington Times, a conservative paper, wrote, As Marie Antoinette might put it, let them have babies. Michigan alumni pressured the university's president to fire her. She received death threats at home from anonymous callers. I was pretty traumatized, said Dr. Geronimus, now 66, over coffee at the New York Public Library in March, so I kind of retreated into my work. In the years that followed, Dr. Geronimus largely stopped going to conferences and rarely talked to reporters, She admitted that this interview was nerve-wracking for her, but with the University of Michigan's continued support, she has published more than 130 papers, expanding and bolstering the evidence for weathering well beyond black mothers. She has studied Latina mothers, Mexican immigrants, and white people in Appalachian, Kentucky among other groups, repeatedly showing that people experiencing high levels of chronic stress as a result of their identities and circumstances have poorer health outcomes. Simultaneously, researchers across disciplines have linked the relentless strain of discrimination to premature aging and dysfunction of the immune, cardiovascular, metabolic, and endocrine systems. That body of evidence, which Dr. Geronimus describes in her new book, Weathering, The Extraordinary Stress of Ordinary Life in an Unjust Society, has turned her into an icon and provided a framework for understanding health inequities that go deeper than blaming poor health on lifestyle choices or flawed genetics. Said Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, a professor at Yale School of Medicine who chaired the White House COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force. There's a solid line from her work on weathering to what we now call social determinants of health. Dr. Nunez-Smith said, Weathering was the foundation of many of the task force's policy decisions during the height of the pandemic which focused on reducing the excess stresses of the pandemic on people of color and low-income groups, like funding non-English-speaking workers to help reach vulnerable populations for contact tracing and switching from drive through testing sites, which excluded those without cars, to walk-in options. COVID is, in large part, why Dr. Geronimus after years of turning down offers from agents, decided to re-enter the fray with her first book. In a grim affirmation of her work, the pandemic, with its disproportionately high numbers of deaths among people of color, has become one of the starkest examples yet of the effects of weathering. The pandemic also presented an opportunity for structural change, she said, which would help address health disparities that have only gotten worse since she published her first paper back in 1986. The Trap of Chronic Stress When the body is exposed to stressors, it goes into fight-or-flight mode, said Elizabeth Brondolo, a psychology professor at St. John's University who studies the psychophysiology of discrimination. Breathing, heart rate, and blood pressure shoot up and the bloodstream is flooded with glucose and fatty acids to fuel the large muscles. Over time, if the sympathetic nervous system reaction remains activated, it can erode internal systems, said Dr. Brondolo. Chronically elevated blood pressure can damage arteries and veins, which can lead to hypertension, for example. A constant stream of cortisol known as the stress hormone, can create insulin resistance, leading to diabetes. Research has suggested that chronic stress can damage DNA and even alter brain structure. Though many people feel stress on a day-to-day basis, surveys have repeatedly found that people of color and those with lower socioeconomic status report more severe and more frequent rates of stress. Research shows that these same groups often can't escape their stressors because they face a higher likelihood of violence, job instability, and discrimination while lacking social or material support. There's also a physically potent and persistent quality to race-based stress. In a series of studies between 1999 and 2009, And in clinical sessions, Dr. Brondolo and her colleagues examined the physiological impact of racist behavior, finding that the body and mind can't easily shake off its effects. In one study, for instance, participants who reported being on the receiving end of racist behavior experienced elevated blood pressure for an extended period, even while they were asleep. That's really the key to what Dr. Geronimus is talking about. There was no recovery, said Dr. Brondolo. Dr. Geronimus' research has found that upward mobility and wealth aren't antidotes for weathering. In one 2006 study, she analyzed the health data, including blood pressure, cortisol levels, liver function, and cholesterol. Of over 1,500 survey respondents, and found that high-income black women had worse health outcomes than low-income white women. In a related case, when researchers from Ohio State University examined black students who attended historically black colleges and universities, they determined that those years of being sheltered, at least somewhat, from racial discrimination, as they put it, put participants at a lower risk of health problems later on, compared with their peers who had attended predominantly white institutions. One explanation for these findings is found in the stress a person experiences when they try to thrive in an environment where their identity or circumstances are in the minority, what psychologists call high-effort coping. The actual physiological energy it takes to succeed against all kinds of structural headwinds and barriers itself is weathering, said Dr. Geronimus. It is one of the reasons black maternal mortality rates remain stubbornly high, she said, even among high-income families, and even as black teenage pregnancies have plummeted in the decades after her first study. The Challenges and Critiques A caveat for much of public health research is that it's observational. It can identify links and associations, but cannot prove causation, said Robert Kastner, a professor at the University of Chicago-Harris School of Public Policy, who worked with Dr. Geronimus on a 2009 study on Mexican immigrants. When it comes to weathering, he said, not only is it a difficult empirical task to measure discrimination— It is also difficult to rule out other environmental stressors. Despite its skepticism regarding its ability to be measured, Dr. Kastner described weathering as intuitive, plausible, and consistent with biological processes. The intersection of health and racism is also a fraught research area that raises challenging questions about privilege and bias. That Doctor Geronimus is a white woman might have afforded her. Pardon me, my text jumped. I'll start that sentence over. That Doctor Geronimus is a white woman might have afforded her some credibility in that context," said Doctor Kamara Jones, an epidemiologist, a, epidemiologist, darn it, at Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. We'll try that again epidemiologist at Rollins School and who served as a medical officer at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention between 2000 and 2014. She went on, White people in general are given more credit when they're naming racism. When people of color do that, we are seen as having a chip on our shoulder or being subjective. In 1992, Dr. Jones had also shown a link between racism and accelerated aging in a study on blood pressure disparities. But she didn't pursue this line of research for very long, in part because one of her advisors told her that she didn't want to be known as the racism lady, she said. Even when I was writing grant proposals, people would call and say, Camera, can you just change the word racism to discrimination? But Dr. Geronimus's race doesn't negate the importance of her research, said Dr. Jones, I am grateful for her work because now the knowledge is out there. Putting Weathering Research to Use In March 2020, an immigration lawyer named Kari Hong contacted Dr. Geronimus with the question, could her research help get detained immigrants out of confinement? Ms. Hong was worried about her clients' exposure to COVID-19 in the close quarters of detention centers in California and Arizona where they were being held. One judge had said people who are uniquely vulnerable to COVID-19 should be able to get out, Miss Hong said. So then the question became, well, who's uniquely vulnerable? It was clear that older detainees and those with underlying health conditions would fall into that category, but for her middle-aged clients, the health risks were less clear. Dr. Geronimus agreed to help. She wrote up legal declarations for seven different cases. It is my expert opinion that detainees younger than 65 who are black or who have been subjected to trauma and other forms of stress-mediated wear and tear based on their social identity or circumstances are biologically older than their chronological ages, she wrote, and are more susceptible to experiencing COVID-19 infection in its most severe forms all seven detainees were released. Without Dr. Geronimus, I wouldn't have had an argument at all, said Miss Hong. In Weathering, Dr. Geronimus proposes other reforms that would decrease stress levels for people at risk, though, she acknowledges, some feel more realistic than others. These include deploying doulas to help reduce black maternal mortality rates, a tactic that's already known, pardon me, a tactic that's already shown success in a few local programs across the country. And reinstating the Biden administration's expanded child tax credits, which for many families reduced the hardship of making ends meet. Congress ended the program at the end of 2021. The idea, Dr. Geronimus said, is to consider health equity even when developing policies that do not at first blush appear health-related. It does sound intractable at first. I've certainly had my periods of hopelessness over what can be done, she said, but since these weathering stressors surround us, that means there are so many leverage points. You just have to be committed. In case you would like to locate that book, Her last name is spelled with a G, G G-E-R-O-N-I-M-U-S, Geronimus. And the book is titled Weathering, The Extraordinary Stress of Ordinary Life in an Unjust Society. Next, moving on to some current events news. This one comes from AP Press. Radio host Larry Elder announces his 2024 GOP bid for president. Posted April 20th by Sarah Burnett. Conservative talk radio host Larry Elder, who sought to replace the California governor in a failed 2021 recall effort, announced Thursday he is running for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. Elder, 70, made the announcement on Fox News' Tucker Carlson tonight and followed up with a tweet which said, America is in decline, but this decline is not inevitable. We can enter a new American golden age, but we must choose a leader who can bring us there. That's why I'm running for president. The long-shot candidate joins a Republican field that includes former President Donald Trump, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former Arkansas Governor Asad Hutchinson, forgive me, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, President Joe Biden, a Democrat, has said he plans to seek re-election. Elder made his first bid for public office in 2021 when he received the most votes out of 46 people who were hoping to replace California Governor Gavin Newsom in a recall effort. But a majority of voters ended up voting against removing Newsom, making the vote count in the replacement contest irrelevant. Some Democrats say Elder's role as a foil to Newsom helped the Democratic governor inspire voters in liberal California to turn out and reject the recall. Newsom attacked Elder for his support of Trump and his conservative positions, such as opposing abortion rights and restrictions imposed to slow the spread of COVID-19, such as mask mandates. But Elder said the experience of running for office and the millions of votes he received showed he had a message that resonated with voters. A lawyer who grew up in Los Angeles's rough south-central neighborhood, Elder attended an Ivy League college and then law school, He has a following among conservatives through his radio programs and has been a frequent guest on Fox News and other right-wing media. Elder, who is black, has criticized Democrats' woke agenda, Black Lives Matter, and the notion of systemic racism, positions that have put him at odds with many other black people. During the recall campaign, a former fiancé said Elder showed her a gun during a 2015 argument. Elder denied those allegations. And a little bit more on him from Reuters, which was posted April 21st by, well, no name. Dateline Washington, right-wing U.S. radio host Larry Elder, a black lawyer who has denied there is systemic racism in America, has announced his candidacy for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. And then they quote his, they include his quote about the decline is not inevitable. Elder emerged as the most serious challenger in California's 2021 recall election. With a message that Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom had botched his response to the COVID-19 pandemic, Newsom handily beat back a Republican campaign to oust him from office. Elder defines himself as an American who is black, rather than African-American, telling The Hill in a 2019 interview, the idea that there's systemic racism against black people is a lie. He has said his views grew out of his parents' contention that he could overcome racism with hard work and determination. Elder calls himself the Sage from South Central, Referring to a largely African-American district of Los Angeles, he left Los Angeles after high school, attended Brown University in Rhode Island, and earned a law degree at the University of Michigan. After practicing law in Cleveland, he returned to Los Angeles in the 1990s and began his career as a radio host, later becoming syndicated nationwide. And then they list the names that are In the race with him, including Tim Scott of of South Carolina, the only black Republican serving in the U.S. Senate, has also formed an exploratory committee. Next, two articles on Tennessee. This first from the New York Times, posted April 14th, written by three, Clyde McGrady, Emily Cochrane, and photographs by John Cherry. The Justins follow a legacy of resistance in Tennessee. The young black Democrats expelled from the legislature bring an activist approach and model themselves after civil rights leaders of the past. Earlier this year, Justin Jones arrived at the state capitol in Tennessee as a freshly elected lawmaker representing parts of Nashville. A 27 year old black Democrat. He belonged to a party vastly outnumbered by a largely white Republican majority. The advice was clear, he said. Everyone kind of kept their head down and told us to do the same, you know, to assimilate, to conform. Months later, Mr. Jones and another even newer colleague, Justin J. Pearson, are two of the most high-profile state representatives in the country— after the two young black Democrats were expelled and then reinstated to their seats in an extraordinary political drama that jolted Tennessee politics while intensifying a debate on race and representation. Republicans in the Tennessee House of Representatives voted to expel the men for leading a gun control protest on the House floor after the slaughter of six people, including three nine-year-old children, in a Christian school in Nashville. Representative Gloria Johnson, a white lawmaker who joined the protest, narrowly survived her expulsion vote. Since that moment one week ago, the careers of the men have fused to create the Justins, a phenomenon that has dominated the national stage, merging a sprawling conversation on gun violence race, and democracy into one potent political package. As young insurgents of their party, they have brought intense focus to Tennessee politics. They have also brought an impatient, confrontational style of protest into their roles as lawmakers, a strategy that has shaken up the Republican-dominated body, but also contradicted the more incremental approach favored by veteran politicians in their own party. Some Tennessee political observers see their actions as a result of frustration with years of Republican antagonism toward African American colleagues who have tried to operate within a system in which they are a minority within a minority. And several Democrats said that while they wouldn't have deployed the same tactics as Mr. Jones and Mr. Pearson, they could sympathize with them. "'I'm not a storm-the-well type of guy,' said Rep. Sam McKenzie, 57, chairman of the Tennessee Black Caucus of State Legislators. He was referring to the front of the legislative chamber where the trio of lawmakers gathered to protest. The well. "'That's not my personality, but I fully understand their frustration.' Mr. Pearson and Mr. Jones, whose districts include parts of Memphis and Nashville, are a generational break from the current political norm and a throwback in many ways to the tactics and styles of civil rights leaders from the 1960s and 70s. Their style is in communion with the tradition of African-American activism in which civic and spiritual life intertwine, and political reprimand from the opposition is worn like a badge of honor. Representative Andrew Farmer, a Republican who filed one of the expulsion resolutions, criticized Mr. Pearson for having, quote, a temper tantrum in the House and yearning to have attention. Mr. Farmer said, If you want to conduct business in the House, file a bill. Mr. Pearson and Mr. Jones emerged from an era of protest sparked by the murders of African American people, often at the hands of the police, and the Black Lives Matter approach of demands for dramatic change. Both tie their activism to their Christian faith. Mr. Jones is a divinity student at Vanderbilt University. Mr. Pearson is the son of a pastor. Mr. Pearson, 28, evokes the image of a 1960s activist in both appearance and manner. His brow line glasses recall Malcolm X, while his afro and dashiki which he wears to the Capitol at times, bring to mind a young Reverend Jesse L. Jackson. Mr. Jones, the theology student, favors blazers and wears his hair pulled back into a small, neat ponytail. He recently seized the opportunity to sing We Shall Overcome with John Baez at the Newark Airport. Both are quick to acknowledge their Civil Rights-era forebears, such as Diane Nash and John Lewis, who led sit-ins to desegregate Nashville businesses. Mr. Lewis, an ordained Baptist minister who popularized the phrase, Good Trouble, served more than three decades in the U.S. House of Representatives. In 2016, he brought floor proceedings to a halt to demand a vote on gun control. Mr. Jones said that before his expulsion, He reflected on the biblical story of the three Hebrew men who emerge unscathed after being thrown into a furnace for refusing to bow before the image of a king and the letter that the the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. wrote from Birmingham, Alabama, jail. After his expulsion, Mr. Pearson gave a sermon on resurrection and tied the political moment, which happened over Easter weekend, To themes of death and rebirth. Though their paths have now merged, both started from different points of origin. Mr. Pearson grew up poor in Memphis and pursued a degree at a predominantly white liberal arts college in the Maine woods. Mr. Jones, the grandchild of Filipino immigrants and black working class Chicagoans, grew up in Oakland, California and arrived in Nashville as a college student at an historically black university. Mr. Jones said it was the death of Trayvon Martin that first moved him to protest. His decision to attend Fisk University, the alma mater of prominent civil rights activists, brought him to Nashville, where he studied political science and became a community organizer championing voting rights. During his student years and after, he protested at the Capitol for an array of issues, including the removal of a bust of a Confederate general from the State Building. He was repeatedly arrested and once temporarily banned from the Capitol for throwing a cup of liquid at a Republican leader in 2019. The charges were later dropped. After the killing of George Floyd, Mr. Jones was a fixture at protests, camping outside the Capitol for more than 60 days. We were begging to, pardon me, We were begging them to change policies, but what we really should do and could do was to change those in the seats, he said. In Memphis, Mr. Pearson grew up in a family that he described as financially poor but spiritually rich. Watching his parents work to earn college degrees and raise their five sons, while his father, a preacher, attended Howard University, Mr. Pearson temporarily went to high school in Virginia. He said he was stunned by the lack of books and resources in his school in Memphis when the family returned. To go from a place that has so many resources to a place that has so few, it was really my first understanding about systemic injustice and inequality, but also about the power of our voices to help affect change. Mr. Pearson recalled in an interview, he he successfully lobbied the school board for more books at Bowdoin College in Maine he served as class president ate his first lobster and found a community within the nearby church Professor Cheryl Laird first met Mr. Pearson in 2017 while he was a student at Bowdoin forgive me i'm not sure about that school's name and recalled him as a polished clean-shaven young man prone to wearing suits around campus but she was struck by his passion, intellect, and study of the social justice figures of the past. Mr. Pearson wrestled, he said, with the stark socioeconomic differences between himself and his classmates with summer homes and boarding school education. When Mr. Pearson returned to Memphis, he and his family successfully led protests against the construction of an oil pipeline which would have cut through a predominantly African-American neighborhood. He ran to fill the seat of Representative Barbara Cooper, a Democrat whose death led to a special election, pledging to push for a cleaner environment in his southwest Memphis district and for police reform that would lower the rate of incarceration of African-American men in the city. Mr. Jones, whom Mr. Pearson had met at protests, was among those who encouraged him to run for the seat. Some see the two freshmen as part of a continuum of... pardon me, of activism among African-American legislators. There's a tradition of resistance in Tennessee black lawmakers, said Seko Franklin, a politics professor at Middle Tennessee State University. He cited legislators such as the former Representative Johnny Turner, who supported the removal of Confederate statues from parks despite the ire it drew from the colleagues, what you saw there at the well is a different kind of resistance. It's waking a lot of people up, what's going on in Tennessee, said Dr. Franklin. The downside is that it was a nonviolent action without any strategy. And so how do you counter the assault that Republicans are going to take? But it has also made some colleagues uncomfortable. At one point after their protest, Mr. Jones, Mr. Pearson, and Miss Johnson were confronted by two senior black Democrats, Representatives Joe Towns Jr. and Karen Camper, the House Minority Leader, warning them that the Republican majority was preparing an expulsion vote and trying to calm the situation. The group appeared to have a tense exchange in which Miss Camper, 65, could be heard ordering the lawmakers off the floor. In an interview later, Miss Camper said her intent was to protect them from expulsion, and she acknowledged the pair had provided a burst of energy to the Democrats. She said, I did reflect on the 60s. Mr. Towns said it was the lawmaker's duty to be effective and bring things back for the district. There's always a time to protest, and there's a certain way you can do it. But in any environment you go into, you must know the rules, he said. This week, Governor Bill Lee, a Republican whose wife lost a friend in the shooting, called for the legislature to take up a measure that would give courts the ability to restrict someone's ability to access guns if the person is deemed dangerous and signed an executive order intended to strengthen background checks. Republicans have not yet publicly rallied behind such a measure and the legislative session will soon end. Both Mr. Pearson and Mr. Jones say the movement is evidence that their strategy is working. Just another short one on this subject, uh, written by Jessica Washington for the theroot.com. Karma? Tennessee Republican who voted to expel Tennessee 3 resigns in disgrace. Tennessee GOP lawmaker Scotty Campbell, who voted to expel black lawmakers, resigns over ethics violations. I do I have a date on this, let's see, posted on the twenty first. Two weeks ago, Republican State Representative Scotty Campbell joined the crusade to get rid of the Tennessee three for joining a gun control protest on the House floor. But as it so often happens in the case of politics, it turns out his hands were far from clean. On Thursday, Representative Campbell resigned after it was revealed that he had violated the legislature's workplace discrimination and harassment policy. The report itself doesn't go into details, but local news station WTVF reported that Campbell was found guilty of, quote, sexually harassing at least one legislative intern, likely two, by an ethics subcommittee acting in secret. The local news outlet confronted Campbell about the allegations, and his responses weren't exactly reassuring when he said, I think conversations are consensual once that is verbally agreed to. If I choose to talk to any intern in the future, it will be recorded. What's even more bizarre about this case is that the Ethics Committee found that Campbell violated the ethics policy on March ninth. Campbell voted to expel the two black lawmakers on April 6th. That means he knew that he had violated the state legislature discrimination and harassment policy when he cast a vote to expel the three members for violating House decorum. It also means that it's likely House Speaker Cameron Sexton, who the letter was addressed to, saw the findings before he led the charge to oust Jones and Pearson. Sexton has not clarified when he saw the letter. Campbell may be out of the state legislature, but it'll be hard to move on from this kind of blatant hypocrisy any time soon. Moving to some lighter topics for a couple of articles. This next one comes from theroot.com, written by Angela Johnson, published April 12. Colin Kaepernick's young adult novel, YA, comes to life in Audible Original. We caught up with the athlete and activist who narrates the story about his decision to pursue his true passion. Back in March, we told you about the release of Colin Kaepernick's graphic memoir, Change the Game. The story, written for readers age 12 and up, follows a teenaged Colin, a high school star athlete faced with a big decision. While colleges, the MLB, and his parents are excited about his potential as a major league pitcher, Kaepernick has a different path in mind. That path would eventually lead him to playing in the NFL and playing an important role in the fight for civil rights. Now, this inspiring YA memoir has a new audio adaptation, and Kaepernick narrates the story about his decision to pursue his passion. The Root caught up with athlete and activist Colin Kaepernick to talk about his new Audible original, Change the Game, The former 49ers quarterback said he decided to share his story with the hopes of inspiring young people to seize their power. We don't control all of life's circumstances, but we can control how we react to them, and that opens up the possibility of achieving our dreams and hopefully even changing the world in the process, he said. Even if you've already read the book, The former 49ers quarterback says the Audible is worth a listen, describing it as a truly immersive experience that brings the voices and action in the book to life. The audio experience is special, he said. You feel like you are part of the story. As a teen, Kaepernick had no idea what impact his decision to pursue football would have on his life and the sport but he says his inspiration to stand up for causes he believes in, even while putting his own career in jeopardy, comes from athletes like Allen Iverson, who dominated in their sports while remaining unapologetically black. When, bring, pardon me, when being true to yourself runs counter to oppressive norms, you are bound to upset some people, he said. But the more important question to ask those who are upset is... Why does someone else's humanity make you mad? After listening to the audible original, Kaepernick hopes listeners will see that the right decision isn't always the easy one, but taking the road less traveled can make all the difference in the world. Throughout our lives, it's often difficult to know the outcomes of the decisions we make. If we chase our passions, though, and do so with good intentions, I believe good things happen. And a movie review, still reading from The Root. This was published on the 21st, written by Chanel Genay. In Chevalier, Kelvin Harrison Jr. puts the toil and triumph of black excellence on center stage. The film is inspired by the true story of forgotten virtuoso violinist Joseph Boulogne, who is often referred to as the Black Mozart. At a time where pivotal moments in history are at risk of being banned and erased altogether, it's refreshing and undeniably important to see efforts made to make sure that significant figures in our society aren't forgotten. Such is the case with Searchlight Pictures' newly released film, Chevalier. Starring Kelvin Harrison, Jr. in the titular role, were capitulated, pardon me, were catapulted into pre-Revolution 18th century France to learn about the life and legacy of Joseph Boulogne, a gifted composer, violinist, and fencer, the illegitimate son of a Senegalese slave and a French plantation owner. We watch as Boulogne rises through the ranks of society to become the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, and I'm mispronouncing that, I'm sure, a mostly celebrated figure in Queen Marie Antoinette's inner circle. As such, life is an excellent and supremely talented black Frenchman, comes with its set of notability, pardon me, notability, perks and prestige, or at least that is the case, up until he decides to go for the highly regarded role of leader of the Paris Opera. At the onset, however, we're still reminded that someone of Boulogne's race is not welcome in France. Whether that's through one of the opening scenes where the young Boulogne is referred to as, quote, a Negro bastard child at a Paris boarding school or, later, after he wins in a fencing duel while words of getting rid of France's greatest threat and the dark pestilence, a.k.a. the Negro, are played in the background. What becomes abundantly clear is that global anti-blackness will be the Belong's greatest challenge to overcome. This challenge is further exacerbated by the arrival of Belong's newly freed mother who comes to live with him after so many years and an illicit love affair with the very white and very married lead singer of the choral symphony he is composing to gain the aforementioned coveted title. What stands to be Boulogne's tragic flaw for most of the film is the belief that his accomplishments, accolades, and celebrity-like status in society are enough to overpower the systemic racism that surrounds him then. It's not entirely his fault that he believes that, as the notion was initially put forth to him by his father, who told him, be excellent, no one can deny an excellent Frenchman when he dropped him off at that school as a child. But what his father failed to fully comprehend, whether intentionally or not, was that Joseph Boulogne was a black Frenchman existing in a place where being black negatively mattered more than anything else. He existed in a place where being black was viewed as a destructive and ungodly force that should be eradicated off the face of the planet and trumped any artistry and achievement he could ever showcase. He also existed in a place where being black and being excellent was seen as more ammo for his destruction and demise rather than his upliftment and evolution. It's that sad truth that proves to be one of the more poignant and off pervasive themes throughout this entire film not only because it highlights just how ignorant and illogical racism is, but it also serves an early representation of the unique position young, gifted, and black folks will have to navigate through year after year, decade after decade, and century after century. It's a tale quite literally as old as time, and reboots of it in today's society LeBron James, Serena Williams, Simone Biles, Viola Davis, etc., sadly get more and more explicit. As black folks, we've heard the phrase you've got to work twice as hard to get half as much for as long as we can remember. But what happens when those efforts to be the absolute best are turned against you and used as just another reason to isolate you and cheat you out of things you rightfully deserve? And, perhaps more importantly for Boulogne, what do you do in return? These questions and more are implicitly explored thanks to a very nuanced and impressive performance by Harrison Jr., whose journey from arrogance and naivete to enlightenment and revolutionary is a joy to watch on screen. Supporting performances from Samara Weaving, Lucy Boynton, and Ronk Adekuleo, Also, help to undergird this almost forgotten story of a man we should know and a man worth knowing. I believe that's in theaters everywhere now. Which brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by the state of Colorado. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at